Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Pamela Green, where to begin? Originally born in New York, she lived a good chunk of her life in Europe and Israel. We'll find out why shortly, and is multilingual. She speaks Hebrew, French, and Italian. Pamela also happens to have one hell of an impressive resume. Her professional life includes directing and producing music videos and commercials, motion graphics, feature film titles, all of which came together when she founded PIC in 2005, an entertainment and motion design boutique based in L.A. Pamela is also the founder of Legwork Collective, which locates and obtains rights to unusual and rarely seen before footage, stills, audio, and artifacts used in features, documents, documentaries, TV series, commercials, as well as businesses outside the entertainment field. Nominated for an Emmy for the documentary Budo, Pamela has also produced main titles, created and advised on internal story sequences and marketing campaigns for the Bourne series, Fast and Furious, The Muppets, and several Marvel comic book franchises. There's more. Pamela has directed TV and award show packages for award show clients, including the Oscars, Billboard, Critics' Choice, and MTV Awards. And last but so not least, Pamela produced and edited Be Natural, a documentary about the first female filmmaker, Alice Guy Blaché. It premiered at Cannes in 2018. Lots of ground to cover. So let's meet and get to know Pamela Green. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Let's really go back. Pamela, why did you move to Europe? Uh, My father did a lot of international business. I just have to say, side note, I was listening to you describe me. It makes it sound like I'm 90. (laughs) (laughs) But I I started very early and I do things very, very quickly um, because I have a very short attention span. But my father traveled a lot for business and uh, thought it would be good, both my parents, for us to be exposed to travel and languages. What did you do? Flip back and forth from Europe to the States? I stayed in Europe. I lived in actually in Costa Rica, Switzerland, Italy, France, and Israel. And I lived in those countries for uh, several years each, which was great because um, it helped me learn the languages, understand different cultures, how people interact, and get exposure to art and um, history, of course, which is uh, something that I really love. All those ingredients, I think, kind of make me who I am and how I look at the world through that lens of having all of that exposure. Well, it also made you flexible that you could move from one area to another area, I'm guessing, without too much difficulty. When you you don't speak the language and you're introduced to a classroom, it's very funny as a, as a child. Uh, the first thing that they teach you is the bad words. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, you learn, you know, certain lingo as a child and you're exposed to, to certain things. And um you know, going from uh, learning uh, Italian first, then French, and then learning Hebrew from French, and then going to Israel, and then having a French accent, speaking Hebrew, you know, and putting it in a, in a normal school, having to learn everything very quickly and catch up with people. It's definitely extremely challenging, but also you're kind of forced to get out of your comfort zone and, and speak up because... You have to understand what people are saying, but also, you you know, I want to succeed. I want to get good grades and et cetera. So definitely challenging. <laughs> so then did you come back to the States to go to college? Yes. It was a little bit of a shock because the <laughs> culture was so different. What year was that? 
uh, probably late 90s. Okay. Um, I wasn't uh, really an American anymore. And I had to, I spoke English with a, with an accent and I had to kind of adjust and, um, you know, work and, you know, uh, go to college, et cetera. And I didn't go to film school. In fact, I didn't even finish college. So there you go. I went straight into working and back and forth, et cetera. Because the problem here was that education was so behind yeah, compared to Europe. Yeah. I had learned all of these things already. So I was really bored and would negotiate with my teachers. Oh, can I just send the paper? Can I do this? Because it was completely different level. It's interesting. So you leave school and then what happens to you professionally and personally? That's a lot of years, but um, I uh, actually used my languages in the hotel business. So I was doing that first. And then... Did you want to go back to Europe once you left college or you thought, I'll stay here? No, no, no. I, I liked it because I feel I felt like America is a land of opportunity. And if you dream big and are passionate, anything is possible. Mm-hmm. So the internet and design and animation came across my way. Uh, I was living in Atlanta at the time. So I got exposed to all of that. And then I moved to California and uh, worked for a company that did trailers and motion graphics, animation, et cetera. And then decided to do my own thing and, um, you know, doing more title sequences, all these different ways to market a film, including working on the film itself. And so I was learning. I was learning how to do all these things. I had no idea what I was doing, (laughs) but I was learning and I would bring in the business too. So cold calling, et cetera. Uh, I used to prank call as a kid. So I'm sure that's probably (laughs) definitely helped me (laughs) with my day job. And um, then a lot of time had gone by and never thought about early cinema. And again, didn't go to film school, didn't go to design animation school. And what was it about the film business? Because as I said, these music videos and motion graphics and feature film titles, which I don't really know anything about. Talk to me about that part of your career because it's so interesting. And then saying to yourself, I think I'll start my own company. (laughs) Well, I had started my own company when I was working as a concierge for uh, a hotel in Atlanta. It was the Nico Hotel and it was the Hyatt. And I did their jazz bunch because I I became obsessed with animation and the idea that you know, you can do all these things with that. But as a child, I was also a dancer. I was a ballet dancer. So that's discipline and timing. And I, I really loved music growing up in Europe and Israel. I was hooked on MTV Europe, MTV Asia, and um, didn't even know who was making what video, etc. I didn't even think about the role of a director. Just knew about Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, and Scorsese. I didn't even think of a woman at the time. It didn't even cross my mind because I thought that's what it was because I didn't even think about that. I just knew that I wanted to do and accomplish things, but I wasn't sure even what. It was more. It was going to be more about I wanted to produce and I wanted to be a businesswoman. Okay. <laughs> I never even thought that I was going to be a creative because uh. I thought that that's what I needed to do. So I came to Hollywood because um, – I was interested in being involved in film as a producer, but I never even thought of, you know, directing, even though I did take one film class in, in college and 
uh, I showed him some material and he said, you should be a director. And I was like, no, I'm going to be a businesswoman, a producer, because that's what I thought I should do, you know, because the arts weren't really looked at as something that you can make a living. And even though I, you know, I would draw, I would do all these things. It was all there. So you decided, in a sense, to take matters into your own hands when you founded PIC, correct? I had tried it other times before that in between, but it was never the right equation or the right time or the right experience. So it's never the right time, the right equation, the right experience. But I was ready to uh, go at it again. And I had cold called pretty much before that everybody in the Hollywood Creative Directory to get different work, et cetera. And I wanted to focus more on doing different things besides main titles, which was more of the, you know, working on the Oscars, working on the MTV awards, just basically, if they can do it, why can't I do it? And what else can I do? What's next? Because once I accomplish something, I got to get out of it and do something else because... You're always moving along. Yes, I want to grow. Could you explain what that means, working on titles? We just see them and maybe we just take them for granted. What does it entail? Back in the day, there was somebody by the name of Saul Bass, and he was known for working with Hitchcock and doing these beautiful title credits, opening credits for films with a very distinctive design, and there's a craft to that. So today... I think you might see it a lot in the comic book movies. There's usually like a crazy sequence at the beginning of the film or at the end. Um, It is a medium that is used to tell a story through graphics and animation that can go over the credits. It helps sometimes set up a backstory. Sometimes there's sections in the film where there's a problem where the studio doesn't have the the finances to reshoot something, so they uh, go to post to try to solve it with narration or using archival footage, etc. So a sequence could just be a fun opening sequence with you know popcorn fun, establishing stuff like you know um, maybe Fast and the Furious or Sex in the City or Now You See Me, or it could be something much more story-driven that really sets up the tone for the film. I was just going to say that, sets a mood. It gives you backstory and context, like the opening for The Kingdom or Budo or uh, Cabin in the Woods, like, you know, some time ago this happened. Or even, uh, you know, I didn't do the Wonder Woman one, but still they had a whole section about Zeus, et cetera, and just really setting up the tone so people say, oh, so that's how that happened. So you don't go in cold and feel like you're missing something. So it's usually used as a device to help tell stories, but sometimes people just want to spend money and just do something fun. Gotcha. (laughs) Gotcha. And so did that eventually morph into Legwork Collective? Well, Legwork is separate because it's uh, finding rare archival uh, footage and stuff. So, for example, like The Kingdom is a sequence where it tells a whole history of Saudi Arabia. So that's finding rare, rare footage to be able to establish the background and getting access to footage of Osama bin Laden, stuff that had never been done before to use in the film. So you work with the director then? Uh, The director gives the direction, and then um, I have to be on my way, and it's kind of my responsibility to find all of these things, which I love doing. Uh So uh, Buddha was another one. St. Judy is a movie I just worked on that has a, a lot of that stuff. So it's finding rare archival stock footage or stills or audio, like even in the uh, baseball movie, 42, 
that uh, will help tell the story to give it context. Do you have a team that works with you? I have a team, but I usually do the first pass and present it to the director to see if that's something that he thinks is going to work. It's a combination of people. The other thing I've done, like the history of soul music for, you know, VH1 or, you know, they wanted to find out about what went on in Nashville and Philadelphia, et cetera. So it's finding a lot of clips and interviews of people that are very rare and new and fresh. So it's not a derivative of stuff that you see all the time. Just going on YouTube is not going to solve it because you have to find the source. You got to license it. And so then, again, there is this fluidity and you move along. You're feeling that you're in a good place professionally, correct? I mean, you've got kind of your fingers in a lot of different pies. And then comes This Be Natural, the documentary about the first female filmmaker, Alice Guy Blachet. Uh, I think Alice was somewhat, I already knew about her, but anything that you work on takes time. It takes work. It takes uh do I want to do this? What am I doing? Should I do this? Should I not do this? And, uh, you know, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if there was enough. I wasn't sure if I was going to find anything at first. Money, very important factor. Did you have to convince a lot of people about the need to make this movie? Oh, a lot of people. Nobody wanted to be interviewed at first. Uh, People would turn off the camera. Women were afraid because of their careers. In what sense? Um, Why? Well, this is before Time's Up, and this is before so many different things. I guess stuff was being discussed behind closed doors. A woman, period piece, documentary, French, unknown. It's career suicide. Who's going to want to watch this? Nobody. How did you first hear about Alice Guy Blachet? Um, I had seen a show on um, AMC. Uh, about uh, women in, in cinema, and one of them was Alice. And um, I just couldn't believe that this woman had directed, wrote, produced, and had her own studio. She was doing everything. And this is what, the early 1900s? From 1896 to 1922, a two-decade career in two countries. And basically, we've never heard of her. I felt that she was robbed and I, it, it bothered me, and it, but it still felt like a footnote of a story. It felt like a trivia thing about her. And even though she had done one of the first narratives, so what? What's the meat in the story? Does she have the work to support her? And then I had seen an interview with her. And once I saw her speak, I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to do this for you because this really bugs me and I, I need to fix this. My grandmother's was one, one of my best friends, and I, I love older people. Uh-huh. And I felt that she was being boxed in as this little old lady that made films when she had so much more to her as far as a person, so many layers and complexity. So I felt that she was being like a stereotypical kind of old lady that made films. Oh, let's interview her and cut her off when she's talking, which I hate. Just not really respected for how much she had done that I felt she had done at the time. She wrote, directed, or produced a thousand films. I mean, that's extraordinary. And the fact that if you went up to 10 people, 100 people, whatever, and said, do you know who Alice Guy Blachet is? They'd look at you like, you know, no, who is she? Why should I know her? And I think you, in a sense, performed this public service 
albeit posthumously, but to get her name out there. I mean, it's extraordinary that a woman in that time period made movies, much less a thousand of them. And all the other roles that she's, you know, she has, like to to get the films out there, to get them distributed, to know the subject matters, to uh, make movies about, you know, to just say, well, I'm going to start my own studio. I don't even speak English, but who cares? I'm just going to do it. So the passion and determination is what I related to. And um, I felt, okay, I need to kind of be your last chapter. I think that's what I was meant to do for her is to kind of finish her, her story so people would know about her legacy and finish the work that she didn't get to do, which was to restore her legacy. Back then, were men taking credit for her work? It's a combination, yes. Men are taking credit or her name is misspelled or her name is not even mentioned. You know, it's, it's a combination thing. And as time goes by, stuff gets omitted from books and the chapters become shorter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, you know, slowly she was being erased. There was a New York Times article that came out right before Can, a very short one. And uh, my name wasn't in there. And I contacted the publicity and I said, why isn't, you know, well, we'll ask the reporter. And the reporter said he didn't have an, enough room. He said that? It was a male yeah. reporter? Oh. Yeah, yeah. He could mention be natural. He can mention a quote from Jody. But you were totally invisible. Correct. And persona non grata. Yeah. Take us on that journey. What was that like, amassing all the footage and, and putting this story together? And and like you said, I would assume part of that rock up the hill was getting funding for your film. The most important thing was to get funding and to get what would be Alice's contemporaries today involved because I felt that silent cinema, nobody likes to watch it. They think it's boring unless it's like Charlie Chaplin. And the way it was seen was not the way I was going to present it because I was looking at it from a fresh uh, perspective. So that took some convincing to do with historians. You know, They're like, who are you? What are you doing? Everybody knows about Alice. Why are you wasting your time? You're not going to find anything. And I had approached Robert Redford because I had worked on two of his movies at the time, then it ended up being three. But on the second movie, when I'd worked on his title sequence, I showed him Alice and his jaw was dropped to the floor and he couldn't believe it. And he's like, I just can't believe it. And she worked for Beaumont and, you know, what are you going to do with this? And, um, you know, I said I was going to do a documentary, but I really needed his help to come on board because that's how it goes. You can't just go out there, think you're going to make something, you know, without any money or anything. You need the best of the best to help you take on something this large. So he came on board and then, um, I contacted Jody because Joan Simon, who's the one uh, the co-writer and the executive producer of the film, uh, she had done an exhibition of Alice's work at the Whitney, and uh, she was a curator, and she mentioned, what about Jody Foster, because she speaks fluent French, and it was a big light bulb moment, because, of course, it's such a perfect choice. And she said yes to narrate it. I almost fell off my chair. Oh, how great. It's not just getting a voice. It's getting a voice behind the voice. Yes. It's not just a job for Jody. It's something that they believe in, both she and Robert Redford, you know. And they're vision visionary. They don't need other people to 
be on board before they join in. They're truly visionary at the ground floor of looking at this and seeing the importance, but also being supportive in, you know, the storytelling and giving me amazing advice uh, along the way. So this movie is my film school. How long did the whole process take you? Almost 10 years. No. It's a lot of work. And uh, and you never gave up? Many times. And whoever would tell you that they never give up on something, they're lying. Because there's times that you just can't take it anymore. I mean, it changed my day job. It changed my income. It changed my life. And not having the freedom to do the things I used to do, it's a complete sacrifice Uh, especially when I had to edit the whole film and raise the funds. And you don't want to quit because you don't want to disappoint the people who gave you money out of their wallets or who stood by me and said, keep going. But it's, uh, it, it affects your health because it's a massive, massive undertaking. That is just extraordinary. I mean, 10 years is, can't even wrap my head around this. You know, I want to ask you, why did you call the film Be Natural? Because uh, when I was looking at everything, I said, what can I do that's going to represent her and what people think in directing? And what's special about Alice and what I liked about her films is they don't look necessarily from that era. There's something naturalistic about them. In addition, she had um, a sign in her studio in 1912 that said, be natural for her actors. So for me... As a filmmaker, that just felt perfect because you hear it on almost on every set. Just you know, just do it naturally. Just you know, be natural. And um, that's something that's so universal and so current. And that she was thinking about that so early on. It just felt that represents her and her work exactly. Did you interview any of her heirs? Well, one of the things about the film was um, I didn't want to just have her tell her story. I felt that it was important that other people talk about her because it's much more powerful in some sense. So to the descendants aspect, the first thing I did was before that was she had memoirs that were published. And um, I made an Excel file of every single person, name, location, date, et cetera. Oh, and wow. I went after every single thing in the f- for the film. And she had an address book. And I went after every single person to see if anybody was alive. It's a dress book from the 50s, so it's a long shot, but I still did. And there's people in the film, not going to give too much away, but um, that are related to her that some knew about and some didn't. So there's um, some anecdotes and things about her. And her daughter is in the film, who obviously is no longer with us, but she was on a a tape that was discovered um, along the way with new information about Alice and the period, which is wonderful. When did Alice die? 1968. And as she got older, did her film career just kind of dissipate, fade away? Yes, but also it's because you have a resume, but if you go back to France, where's where are the goods? She doesn't have the films to show because back in the day, you would distribute the films They would go to a theater. They don't come back. So she doesn't even have anything in hand to show. And also she goes back to France. She's 50. 50 back then is ancient. Of course. Who wants to hear from a woman talk about cinema or be a boss or whatever? Nobody cares. 
that I want to talk to to her because at the beginning, cinema didn't have a future, according to many people. It wasn't something that had a revenue. But once it became more of a revenue stream for men and business and banks, etc., the women were pushed out anyway. So there wasn't it wasn't like she was going to have a chance. How has the film been received? Uh, it opened at Cannes, then it went to Deauville, Telluride, New York, London. Uh, Brazil it keeps going around the world to different festivals. Uh, they love it. I've been getting a lot of good feedback. The older generation, I thought, was a given, but it's the younger generation that, you know, they personally contact me, whether they're 15 or 17 or in the 20s or 30s. Um, they're very, very inspired by Alice. Why wouldn't they be? She's very charming. And just sort of putting somebody on the map, this is a public service. It is. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's very easy to get sometimes distraught about it. It's like, where's my life going? What have I accomplished? Yes, I made this film, so what? But then I think about it and I said, well, wait a minute. There's all these people outside of academia that are going to know about her now. And they're being influenced and books are being rewritten and... Things are changing in, in the landscape of schools and education, in the industry. She's being mentioned, or she was never mentioned before. So, you know, I get excited about it for five minutes or so, and then <laughs> I move on to my next thing. Because I don't believe in, you know, it's not about what you did, what are you going to do next? So after Be Natural, what's on the horizon for you, or maybe closer than the horizon? Some sleep. <laughs> but... um. I do have another story about another woman, but um, it would not be a documentary. I think that I'm not going to say never, but I made that specifically for Alice because I wanted justice to be served. It's like paying homage to her, in other words. Yes. I don't think I would do. I'm not going to say never because I I don't want to eat my words, but I don't think I could take on something like that again. It would have to be something extraordinary. And special, especially for that length of time. Yeah, no I, kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm used to short form. So to go from short form to editing a whole movie, that's a massive, big length change. So yeah, <laughs> probably would, uh, I'm thinking about uh, a series uh, about a woman who is also unknown, who's pretty extraordinary. Alice is always going to be the most extraordinary. I don't think I can ever say, oh, she was great, but this one. You know, you can't do that. The bar is set fairly high with her, in other words. Yes. Again, it was for her, and she changed my life as well, because when you make a film like that, you definitely, you evolve and transform and change. And I look at the world a lot differently than I did before. Well, I think, and I've said this a lot to the women I've interviewed, especially documentary filmmakers, the power of that to educate and expose just can't be diminished. I'm excited for you. I mean, that you can sit back and now relish all of your hard work, you know, how it's, quote, paid off. I don't think about it too much because it stresses me out. So actually, I'm going to probably take a nap and... (laughs) Because every time I, I show the movie, I'm terrified. I, I want to throw up. Is it good enough? Are they going to like it? Did I really? do a good job? I'm always worried. I'm like, you know, it's going to be reviewed by more critics. And, and, you know, that was the festival world. Now this is the theatrical world. So it's a little bit different. And, of course, I'm cause, terrified because I put myself on the line. It's Part of my voice is in there. And um, 
you you never know if it's if it's good enough and if somebody is going to relate and feel what you were feeling when you were making the film and the things that you you know trying to convey in there is it funny to them do they like this part do they get sad there so uh, absolutely i'm always scared i think that's a it's a good thing because you know you want to be on your toes a little bit you can't be completely confident and set the bar high yes well Pamela, it was really great to meet you and hear about your career and hear about this real class act as in Alice Guy Blaché. It's really exciting. And I hope you can take it all in and revel in what you have done because you've done something really seminal. Thank you so much for having me and asking amazing questions. Thank you so much, Pamela Green. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.